When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and this region. I'm Martin Pierce. We are a production of PolicyForum.net, which is based at Crawford School of Public Policy. That's Australia's leading graduate policy school. If you're keen to take your public policy career up a notch, check out our wide range of degrees and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. You can find all the information you need there. In the past few weeks, we've covered a lot of ground on Policy Forum Pod from how to better manage fires in a changing climate to the impacts of the fires on Indigenous people. This week marks the fifth in our series on Australia's bushfires and This time, we want to take a look at the impact of the fires on those already struggling even before disaster struck. The bushfires have maintained a tight grip on public consciousness here in Australia. Even as I speak, there are hundreds of fires still burning. And just 48 hours ago, Canberra was blanketed with thick smoke from bushfires burning near the city. But while firefighters continue to control the blazes all across the country, many communities are returning to devastated towns and assessing the damage. They're trying to come to terms with the appalling loss of land, of properties, of biodiversities and indeed lives and grappling with tremendous trauma. That's a challenging task for anybody, but it's one that's infinitely harder to manage for those who are already struggling before the fires hit. People with low incomes, those in marginalised groups, those living with a disability, or people sleeping rough face enormous challenges in the face of disaster, from not having access to a suitable car to not having enough money to pay for temporary accommodation. Grants such as the federal government's disaster recovery payment are available to low-income earners, but they've been criticised by many, including the Australian Council of Social Service, for being seriously inadequate, particularly for people on lower income. So today on the pod, we want to ask, how have the bushfires affected those living in poverty? And How can policies targeting those groups be changed to provide real relief in a time of crisis? So to take on this really important topic, we have three outstanding experts in our podcast studio today. Peter Whiteford is a professor at Crawford School. He has previously worked as the Principal Administrator and the Director of Employment, Labour and Social Affairs of the OECD in Paris. Hello, Peter. Hi, Martin. How are you? Uh, Sharon Bessel will be familiar to all of you. She's a professor at Crawford School, a regular host on the podcast here, and of course, the ANU co-lead of the Individual Deprivation Measure Project. Hello again, Sharon. Hi, Martin. Great to be back. And we welcome once again, Dr. John Fowson, who is a Senior Fellow at Per Capita, and we was previously Chief Executive of the St. Vincent de Paul Society National Council of Australia. Hello again, John. G'day, Martin. It's great to have you all back to discuss this really important topic. The bushfires have now devastated over 2,000 homes. They've left communities with terrible trauma that's going to take a long time to heal. And while the impact of the fires has been felt by everyone in those communities, they are particularly devastating for those who are already struggling. So I want to start this off with a question to all of you, which is how well do you think the government has responded to the needs of those on low incomes? Maybe, Sharon, we'll start with you. I think it's probably reasonable to say that the government's response generally um, has not been exemplary um, when we think about the way in which they have responded to this crisis overall. And I think that probably 
translates across to the way in which people on low incomes have have been dealt with. You know, there has been a response, but um, at the federal level, it's been minimalist. And when one reads the accounts of people who were already struggling but have now lost everything, or perhaps were already struggling and have not lost their homes and fortunately have not lost loved ones but have lost their livelihoods, I think what we get a sense of is people feeling left behind, excluded, unsure of what's going to happen to them. Um, and so I think we have cause for concern about the practical response of the government, but also what to me has been a complete lack of empathy in the government's response um, to people who have suffered great trauma and great personal loss as a result of the fires. I'd like to focus on um, the Prime Minister's discourse being quite consistent uh, actually before and and during the uh, the bushfire crisis. Last year, he said, really summarising his philosophy, uh, if you put in you get to take out and you get to keep more. Uh, He was talking, of course, about tax and he was talking about what he obviously saw as our social security system being a negative because it reduces the so-called self-reliance. And I think that's been consistently played out in the way uh, the federal government uh, has approached the bushfire crisis. It's very much a matter of individualising both the risk and the consequences of the, uh, of this disaster, and so uh, you know we're we're seeing uh, you know the, these messages of yeah we need to build resilience. Australians are tough. Uh, Australians can can uh, get back up after after a, a crisis, and these th- these words ring terribly hollow because what lies behind them is of course. A, a systematic decimation of our social infrastructure, a gutting of some of the essential social services, not to mention, of course, uh, under-resourcing of the, you know, the very means to fight bushfires, uh, you know, n- not, not incidentally. Uh, and so uh, you know, what we're seeing as an approach to this crisis, particularly as it impacts on people who are on low incomes, I think is entirely consistent with the neoliberal framing uh, that this government seems to champion and uh, and delight in. Peter, you have particular expertise in social policy. What's been your read on this? I think that the issue or one of the most striking issues is thinking about where we go from here. I think um, I read earlier today that the Reserve Bank estimates that the impact of the bushfires for Australia as a whole um, will knock off nearly half of what would otherwise be the growth in GDP in the next quarter. Except, of course, Australia as a whole is not affected in the same way. This is really concentrated in specific areas. So if you just think that it's going to knock off half of the GDP growth for the country as a whole – if you think about what impact it has on those particular locations and regions that are that are most affected, and that's geographically quite a lot of Australia, but obviously a lot of it is in um, eastern Victoria, in southeastern New South Wales, on Kangaroo Island, but actually all over the place as well, um, that the impact on those regions is going to be much, much bigger than losing half of your economic growth for a quarter. It's you're going to be going backwards a long way. So what I think we're looking at in terms of those locations is the same as a deep recession, a really potentially a really deep recession, particularly because it looks as if how timely the response can be is, you know, sort of it's not clear how long it's going to take to build those places back up. So I think that for those communities, um, it's going to have a a really profound impact. And I think anybody who saw Q&A on Monday night and um, looked at some of the questions, the people in that audience and some of the questions that were being asked um, by people who work for small business and um, also the, the local member for BIGA, uh, you know, they're still struggling to come to grips with what it's going to do do to those communities. And there's a real risk that if the government or governments don't have a really sort of a clear plan about what they're going to do to start the process of recovery off, that some of those 
parts of Australia could become unviable in terms of, you know, people aren't going to be able to hang around. Um, there was a question from somebody who works for a real estate agency um, and, you know, that's somebody who presumably was reasonably well off in the community, not not particularly poor, but um, she could see her entire livelihood disappearing in front of her. So that, what I think is that is going to be essential is thinking about the coordination at the local government level, at the state government level, and the role of the federal government in actually really rebuilding some of those places and rebuilding those communities in a, in a pretty short period of time. Now, in my intro, I talked about the disaster recovery payment, which has been criticised by a lot of people, including the Australian Council of Social Services, as being too low. The payment remains at its 2006 levels. It's $1,000 for eligible adults and $400 per child. And everybody gets the same payout, no matter what their socioeconomic background Peter, that doesn't sound like much to me to help people get back on their feet. So is it time to reassess that policy and increase that sum, particularly for low-income earners? I mean, the other thing about all that, of course, is it's also related to the level of New Start and uh, people, um, John, um, amongst others, uh, has been pointing out for years uh, the complete inadequacy of the level of New Start, which hasn't substantially been increased in real terms since 1994, so even even earlier. And some of the – and, you know, some of the payments I think people are applying for are about the same level. Now, that's the level of Newstart. And um, in terms of how much of a wage Newstart replaces, um, we occupy the lowest level in the OECD in terms of – so if, you're, if, you, if you lose your wage, your income, and you go into unemployment payments, which are you know, sort of not strikingly dissimilar to the disaster payments um, for 13 weeks, you, your income falls by – more than anywhere else in the developed world. We need to look at the adequacy of the entire social safety net in Australia. Um, and as I said, particularly New Start, which has been perceived to be inadequate for a long period of time, and which the government has consistently, you know, argued that they don't need to do very much. So I think that um yeah, we need we need to we need to think very seriously about our attitudes uh, to people who experience unemployment, experience the need to call on the safety net. And now there's this extra group of people who are going to be calling on, you know, sort of a slightly not quite as restrictive aspect of the safety net um, in the future. I think this links back nicely to the point that John made as well about the consistency in the government's rhetoric prior to the, the crisis that we're now facing and, and what's happening now. And the way in which the the welfare state, but the idea that the state has a role to play when people fall into times of hardship, you know, that the fact that that idea has been eroded away over time is really essential here. And I think we're, we're facing a situation where so many people could be plunged into dire poverty, you know, people who were already struggling, but also, um, you know, Peter gave the example of the woman in real estate who may be losing her livelihood. So a group of people who haven't previously faced hardship, finding themselves in poverty. And so we've got a crisis on our hands, but I also think we've got a moment in time where we can really rethink what we want this country to look like going forward, what role we think the state should play and the role of welfare as an essential part of that, you know, of the way in which we look after people when they are in times of hardship. So I, I think, you know, we, we have a challenge because the current federal government has, in my view, failed to show very much vision, um, apart from promising tax cuts to certain parts of the electorate. And so that's worrying, but we do have a moment when we could really rethink and recalibrate the way we approach these issues and approach um, people who are in need of, of support with much more empathy and moving away from this highly individualised approach that John talks about to thinking much more about how we support people and how we rebuild communities and connect people rather than ostracise them when they fall into hardship. I think that's absolutely right, um, Sharon, that um, the very fact that we're seeing people who uh, wouldn't ordinarily have needed to rely on social security payments needing that, um, there is 
an opportunity to reframe the whole notion of social security as something really good that we should be proud of rather than uh, being framed as a, a burden or, or something that, uh, that carries with it a stigma. Uh, you know, we, we built the social security system to help people at a time of need. Um, that's being whittled away, as we know, and that's evidenced by uh, the, the point that Peter made about the, the level of the new start payment, of course. Uh, but in many other ways, the, the quality, uh, the nature of service provision, the fact that we've seen so many jobs outsourced uh, from Centrelink to people who are uh, you know, not necessarily trained to deal with the people who, who need to contact Centrelink. So we, we do have an opportunity there to reframe what our social security system should mean for all of us. My concern is, going back to Peter's point about the economic ravages in those particular areas, is if we are silent, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the government going down the path of just as we see it pathologising and demonising individuals who are experiencing unemployment, for instance, or homelessness or um, any other uh, need for income support, we are going to see communities being pathologised and demonised. We've seen this before, and the Northern Territory intervention is is a prime case of this. And we saw, uh, you know, remember when um, John Howard gave that famous speech on the tenth anniversary of his prime ministership, and he spoke about the zones of chaos, the zones of chaos that affect young people's lives, and of course, it was all building up to the whole language and actions of the intervention. I'm concerned that if we don't collectively uh, change the frame, then we may well see a move in that direction rather than a really constructive engagement uh, with areas of, uh, of very dire e- economic need. I, I think, you know, Sharon, you're, you're absolutely right in saying that this, this is a, a, a potential turning point, but the leadership won't come from the government. Mm, it's got to come from us on the ground. I mean, we've heard on the pod over the last few weeks about how disasters such as these are going to become more frequent and they're going to become more extreme. But we've also heard insurers talk about how as these extreme events increase, insurance premiums could become unaffordable for ordinary people. And that strikes me as a very concerning thing. Is there a role for governments? Should they be stepping in if private insurance becomes too expensive for people? Uh, look, I, I, you know, it, it's a really interesting historical question because, of course, you know, you, you, it wasn't that long ago uh, when insurance, private insurance was the basis for uh, you know, fire brigade response. Uh, you know, you can see in the powerhouse museum, you know, plaque showing that that a building has got fire insurance and therefore could ensure that, uh, that there would be a private fire brigade responding to it. And so as a society, I would like to think that we have moved on from that, that, you know, we, we don't accept that you get out what you put in, that we do believe in socialising or, or, or uh, you know, collectivising uh, the risk and the appropriate response, uh, you know, and, and the same in health and education, for instance, we certainly haven't got there in housing. We still we still see housing very much as a, as a, a private concern. And so I think your question really hits on the way we are going back to the way we look at risk in our society, uh, the way we look at vulnerability. Again, that you know that term is a, a, a highly questionable one in some in some ways. But the the interesting thing is, of course, in the in the bushfire emergency, many people who would not have considered themselves vulnerable feel very vulnerable. Even those who have not been yet directly impacted by fire itself, uh, that that sense of fear and uncertainty, the fear of losing one's home, the fear of losing one's livelihood, one's pets, one's personal belongings. Uh, and when you think about it, you know, it turns things on, on its head because the people who are constantly experiencing income deprivation are, are often living in a constant state of crisis. You know, it's a bit like when Peter mentioned about you know, sort of uh, recession being experienced by those areas. 
many of these people feel like they're living in a permanent recession. I think that that raises a really interesting question about about when that experience is, is, I suppose, shared, even sort of minimally, can it change the way we think about uh, our need for social infrastructure and our need to change change the whole architecture of uh, you know imposition of risk. We talk about risk as a a, a positive virtue in the entrepreneurial world, don't we? Um, and then we talk about it as a bit of a vice if someone has been foolhardy and you know, engaging in risky behaviour. But we don't talk about this imposition of risk on people who are not seeking it, and yet economically and socially are absolutely immersed in it. Okay, let's take a quick break there. Listeners, do stick around. When we come back after the break, we'll have a look into how some other marginalised groups have been affected by the fires and what policy responses could and should look like. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I'm still here with John, Sharon and Peter. In the first part, we talked a little about some of the devastating impacts on low-income earners, in particular from Australia's bushfires. But there are, of course, other groups that are particularly vulnerable to the impact of disasters, including women, children, rough sleepers, perhaps even people with disabilities. Sharon, Jenny Smith, the CEO of the Council to Homeless Persons, said that times of stress in our community have been shown to increase family violence across the board, and that will cause problems for women and children looking for safe haven in that additional circumstance. So how do women and children experience traumatic situations like we've seen over the last couple of months in Australia? So I think every social group is going to be impacted by the crisis that we've seen. I guess I'd preface these comments by saying that we know from the evidence that family violence is not restricted to any one group and that family violence occurs across the socioeconomic spectrum. So I think that's really important for us to to keep in mind. But we also have um, some evidence to suggest that stress of various kinds impacts on families and that can, not necessarily, but it can increase violence. And I think there are a number of ways of, of slicing this to think about it. I mean, one goes back to the, the point that John made earlier that um, – the bushfires have happened in a particular context and that context has been cuts over a period of time to a range of services um, around domestic violence and for women and children who are in need of support. Um, so this comes at a time when we've seen a dip in funding and support for those types of services. We, so we, we need to think about how we support people who who are likely to be um, experiencing more violence in that broader context. I think we also need to think about, you know, you, you mentioned the impact on children. We also need to think about um, the real challenge that we have in Australia around youth suicide and the way in which the drought that has been experienced in so many areas of Australia have impacted on the mental health of you know a number of different social groups, but um, particularly young people. We've heard about the impacts of young people living in drought-affected areas as they've tried to take responsibility for looking after their parents. You know, stories of young people who are on suicide watch for their their parents um, on farms where there there are real crises unfolding because of the drought. So we know from those kinds of experiences, the impacts um, on mental health and anxiety of, of young people, that's likely to happen in areas that have been very badly affected by the fires, where young people are struggling with the trauma themselves, but also worrying about the impacts on, on their families. We need to be concerned about what happens in terms of family violence and the impacts of, on women and children. We need to also think about the impacts on men who no longer have an income and are experiencing increased levels of stress themselves and what that does both in terms of their relationships with their families but also what that does in terms of their mental health and 
issues of suicide, of health, self-harm um, and the struggles that those people are going to be ha- going to have. So I think this is a really complex issue that we need to unpack very carefully. Um, I think Jenny's comments are right. We need to be worried about family violence and those impacts. But there are a whole range of complex issues here that we need to take the time to sit down, to think through and to resource appropriately and empathetically. And we need to do that in conjunction with communities. And so I think this also goes back to that issue the John mentioned of connectedness um, and the point I made earlier about social relationships. Now, how do we start to put supports in place in communities that mitigate some of those effects before they happen? How can we ensure that people who are under stress are able to get the help they need, both financial and otherwise, so that we begin dealing with this before that particular crisis of violence or suicide or mental health deterioration actually happens? Everyone- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. The ideas has been floated along these lines is people with disabilities, Western Australia, uh, recently called for greater support for vulnerable people to prepare for bushfires. And the, the idea that they put forward was to create a register for vulnerable people. Peter, what do you think of that idea? Well, I mean, I think uh, particularly in terms of um, people who have difficulty with mobility or access and uh, depending on what their personal, you know, whether they have members of their family who are keeping track of them. I mean, pretty clearly in a context of natural disasters of different sorts, then, you know, sort of that's going to be very important because, uh, you know, one of the famous things you hear even around Canberra is, you know, sort of the, the advice from the emergency services leave now. Now, if you have certain sorts of, if you have mobility problems, are, are you going to, you know, unless somebody can come and pick you up, you're not going to be able to leave now. So, I mean, I think there's, there's obviously issues to do with privacy and um, that could be involved. But I, I mean, I think, as Sharon was saying, it needs to be part of a really a rethinking of the role of government. Because the thing that strikes me about, um, and this may have been said in earlier podcasts, is that um, is this the new normal? Is this something, you know, I'm sure lots of people are thinking, well, with a bit of luck, we won't have another year like this for you know, maybe 10 years or something like that. But what happens if it's every second year or every year? Um, and also, of course, you know, the, the projections are that the new normal is things getting worse, not just staying like this, right? Um, that as, as the distribution shifts to the right-hand side in terms of um, emergencies, that um, there'll, there'll be a much bigger increase in the what normally would have been regarded as very rare occurrences. So I think that what we need is a, a national conversation about, you know, what's gonna what is likely to happen over the next ten to twenty years. Addressing the fundamental causes of these problems is the is, is you know extremely important. But if we're also talking about adaptation, and in the short run, adaptation is going to be part of it. Then, how do we adapt to this new normal? Now, that's um, you know, it's a whole range of services in terms of um, you know fire services. It's in terms of um, uh, services to help some of those 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 people with particular um, issues related to disability. But it has, to, it has to be across the whole spectrum of thinking about what are the responsibilities of government. And I think part of that is a discussion about the, the role of government and the collective responsibility that we have and the role of volunteerism. Because what we've seen in response to this crisis, and I, I think it is overwhelming to think what the volunteers who have been fighting the fires have been able to do um, and the debt of gratitude that we all have to them. Um, It's incredible how much people have been prepared to donate um, to a whole range of GoFundMe and sites that have been set up to um, to a range of organisations. But is that sustainable Mm. if this is the new normal? Will people be willing and able to continue to give in the way that people have, have given 
for this crisis. And we've seen that response as a global response, you know, with everyone from tennis players to singers, you know, donating large amounts of money. But if this is the new normal, I don't think we can rely on that. And I guess it does worry me somewhat that that generous response that we've seen in terms of volunteerism will allow the government to kind of Mm. pull back even further because someone else will take responsibility. Whereas fundamentally, this requires us to think very deeply about the role that the government plays um, in in the new context that we're facing. And I don't think we can rely on the fact that this may not happen for 10 years. I, th- I think that's um, you know, a really good point about um, our attitude to volunteerism. And, you know, the, the Prime Minister, um, you know, that the comment he made early in the piece uh, regarding the fireys w- wanting to be there as a, a, an excuse for not uh, providing any kind of um, financial support uh, while they were away from their uh, their work and so forth, uh, you know, just beggars belief. But it, but it also you know raises that spectre uh, that Sharon refers to of volunteerism and charity being the default mode of delivering social services and social security, and that's what we do not want. But it's it's the path upon which we have already started to venture, uh, and charity is never a substitute for justice. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, a lot of people have benefited in in uh, you know, incredible ways from support uh, from the charitable sector. But we we cannot allow this to let government off the hook for government to abrogate its responsibility to ensure uh, you know the the collective good. It, it's it's really interesting uh, you know talking about the new normal. In some ways, the new normal is the old normal, let free to run its tr- destructive trajectory. It's the normalising the normalizing of powerlessness. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the threat of bushfire is in, in, incredibly emblematic of that sense of powerlessness against what is about to happen. And I, I would argue that the, the way we need to, to rethink and reorganize collectively goes to the very heart of addressing that sense of powerlessness. We need to say no to that um, acceptance of powerlessness. Uh, we need to start talking about uh, how collectively we can take control of our future so that the powerlessness experienced by many people, um, and you know, this, this goes to the heart of poverty and inequality in Australia beyond the bushfire crisis, that, uh, that, that, that this is not normalised, that people have a sense of collective empowerment to change the shape of our economy, to change, to, to reconfigure how we think about the economy uh, instead of it being uh, for, the, for the benefit of very few, uh, that we actually democratise it, democratise the way we, we distribute resources as well as the, the, distrib- the redistribution of hope, of course. Uh, and you know, it goes back to, to what neoliberalism Means and I love that quote from Pierre Bourdieu, uh, the French sociologist. When he says, "Oh, what is neoliberalism? It's a program for destroying collective structures which may impede the pure market logic." And I think that's what's got to lie at the heart of uh, the conversations we have about reconfiguring the way we look at economy and society. Ties in really with what Peter was saying in terms of the need for a new national conversation on these things, as well as talking about adaptation measures. And in fairness to the Prime Minister, at his press club address last week, he did spell out a number of uh, new adaptation measures. But do, as a panel, do you get any sense that we are on the cusp of having that new national conversation that you, you think we need to have? In many respects, this has been the biggest shock to the status quo of what people think about what's happening in Australia that we've experienced for a long period of time. Because, you know, um, for many people, this is a crisis threatening their very existence, you know, in, um, um, you know, We've also had the smoke and throughout, you know, sort of affecting Sydney and Canberra longer than Sydney, but it's also affected Melbourne and presumably dozens and dozens and dozens of small places around the country. Uh, yeah, and that has a very long term 
risk for you know health and particularly for children and you know, and vulnerable people as well. So it's sort of like uh, if we can't bring ourselves to have this new conversation, and, I, and I'm, I'm not I'm not saying where we should end up, but I think that we really have to fundamentally question. Uh, the approaches we're taking to public policy across a wide range of areas um, if we're going to not only move f- forward in sort of equity terms but you know just maintain our economy you know that the, the economic impact of um, as I said it, it may be highly highly focused but if you look two of our biggest export industries are tourism and um, higher education yeah um, uh, uh, tourism, Directly employs about six hundred and fifty thousand people, I think, and indirectly getting on towards a million. You know, the, the employment effects, the economic effects of not trying to make ourselves um, proof against these risks uh, is immense. Sharon, do you get any sense that we are on the verge of the national conversation around these issues that we need to have? I mean, I think the reality is we have to have this conversation. The the prime minister did in that press club address start to indicate that he was at least prepared to begin some of those conversations. But the track record here is is not great. A lot of the criticism around what has happened in the government's response has been targeted at Prime Minister Morrison himself. And I think that's quite reasonable because he has taken an approach since the election to putting himself at the centre of government and you know, the public discourse has been, you know, led by by him, very focused on him. I think the Prime Minister has to take some leadership on this issue and whether the current Prime Minister is able to do that, I think, is, is a, an open question. But it cannot be driven by one person alone. We need national leadership on this issue that is broad-based. And we need to start to look at how we can build a consensus in what has been a very divisive debate around climate change and climate policy, in what has been a very divisive debate about the um, dismantling of the welfare state, the way in which we approach people who um, are experiencing poverty and hardship. And so I think we've, we've got to start to shift that conversation. I don't think that can come from one person, and I don't think it will come from one person at the moment, um, but we have to find ways of building a greater consensus about how we move forward. And I think part of that is um, demonstrating empathy towards people who feel that they are being left behind. You know, if we if we look back to the debates around um, the Adani coal mine, you know, part of the issue there was that people felt completely marginalised, you know, people who felt their livelihoods were likely to be dependent on the coal industry um, and who were probably not doing terribly well anyway, felt themselves to be marginalised from those debates. So as we move forward, we need leadership. But I think this goes to the point that John made earlier around um, involving people in these conversations. We need to find ways of having um, empathetic and civilised discussions about what we want the country to look like going forward. And that ranges from the the kind of big picture issues that Peter's been talking about, right through to what how do we respond in this type of smoke crisis that we've had in some of our major cities, particularly in Canberra and Sydney? How do we respond to homeless people who are out on the streets in the midst of that? So you know we've all suffered from that, but what about people who are actually living on the streets and breathing it and have no alternative at all? So I think we've got a, a, a spectrum of a conversation to have from the very big macro issues right down to the kind of very personalised responses. Um, and and it's a conversation that we don't have a choice about. It's a conversation that we must have. Not only a conversation, uh, I would say. But, Change in action. But, but a struggle, you know, a, a battle. Uh, it will be a battle. Uh, it will be a battle of ideas, but it will be a real battle regarding the, the defence of of uh, people's rights. Um, I'll go back to the point about about disempowerment, and I think about the you know the current debates or lack of debate, <laughs> more like on on the cashless welfare card, which you know uh, the government uh, appears to want to roll out. And I, I always thought from the very beginning that it was being absolutely cynically and and race uh, on a racist basis you know, rolled out in the Northern Territory as a, as a trial run uh, for what could be done. Uh, 
uh, you know, right, right across the social security system. And it's a, it's an excellent example of, uh, you know, disempowering people, uh, imp- uh, talking about income management instead of addressing income adequacy. And in many ways, that's symptomatic of, of that neoliberal agenda. And I think of, um, the, the, uh, the political theorist Wendy Brown when she, she talks about the economy, um, in inverted commas in the way, the same way people have, uh, at least in the past spoken of the nation, uh, you know, which is you know, meant to be terms that are co- coterminous with, with all of our needs. And we're expected, you know, to, to sacrifice everything for the benefit of the economy. The economy is the reason purported that we, we we couldn't address climate emergency because we, you know it, the economy would suffer, and that continues to be the argument by the federal government. It's it's in the interests of the economy that we we have to accept, give our assent to cuts to social infrastructure, uh, to further residualisation uh, of uh, of massive sections of the of the workforce and and casualisation, um, the the you know the, the the cutting of expenditure alongside uh, the cut. Of of uh, of taxes for for people at the at the at the higher end and corporations, that loss of rights uh, that's that's become part of the neoliberal wi- wisdom that has seeped into the public imagination, and I think this is the time uh, you know a, a really important time for us to question the very heart of what the economy means uh, in whose in in whose interests. Now we do need to draw this conversation to a close, but before I do, I kind of want to put each of you on the spot in terms of policy. What would each of you like to see come out of that national conversation in terms of a concrete policy, a national battle, as you talked about it, John? What should, in your in your eyes, come out of that national conversation? Perhaps, Peter, if we start with you. I mean, I think a significant part of our problem is that we um, we look only at the short term in the economic debate. It's all come, you know, an awful lot of us about you know whether we're going to have a budget surplus or not and how big the surplus is. It occupies a lot of attention. It's economically a fundamentally unimportant issue, really. So, what I think what we need to do um, is we very that we very specifically need to think about how we prepare for the future. And that perhaps, you know, something like, um, you know, a set of goals, specific goals, objectives that, you know, that you can measure our progress against, um, uh, both socially and environmentally. That may be a bit vague, but, you know, when you set specific objectives, um, you know, some of them like um, reducing greenhouse gases, you might be able to weasel your way around it in various ways if you, um, you know, sort of have carryover credits and things like that. But I think that we need to um, have very specific social and uh, environmental objectives that um, are reported um, to Parliament you know, on a regular basis so that we can we can keep tracking yeah, have achieved progress and and track our progress and uh, identify when we're not um, when when we're not moving forward, but just living in the same old confused sort of ideological mess that we have for quite a number of years. Sharon, you uh, co-lead the Individual Deprivation Measure Project, which is, of course, is a project which looks at specific measurements of these types of things and tracks them over time. So I suspect Peter might have stolen your thunder, but what would be your uh, one policy suggestion that you would like to see come out of that national conversation? I guess I, I, I take the opportunity to say that one of the things that we aim to do in the Individual Deprivation Measure is not just assess income, but assess multidimensional poverty. And of course, one of the things that is very likely to come out of the bushfire emergency is is not just income poverty, but poverty across all its dimensions. So we need to to understand it as income, but as income plus. Um, What would I like to see happen? Well, I guess at the macro level, I think we, we need a response to climate change that is fundamentally different from the response that we've seen to date. We need leadership and we need government that takes the evidence that is clearly available very seriously rather than dismissing the the evidence that that has now amassed you know over a number of years and is you know almost universally accepted by 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 
scientists um, as as being the reality that we're facing. So we have to have a fundamentally different approach to climate change. Um, we need a prime minister that will meet with fire chiefs <laughs> to put a plan in place rather than dismissing them. But we also, I think, need to start thinking much more strategically and long term about what the, the new world that we're facing means for us, both in terms of threats and challenges, but also opportunities. You know, a number of countries around the world have started to shift towards um, a clean energy economy. You know, and Australia is has been at the forefront of some of the technology that can drive that. So we still do, I think, have a window of opportunity to be able to respond to climate change in a way that actually doesn't undermine the economy but shifts us towards a new economy that's going to be better for people and better for the environment. So I think that needs to happen and that needs to start happening now. Um, the second thing that I, I think really needs to happen is uh, a rethinking of the way in which we approach policy. And I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think much of the political debate in Australia over probably the past decade, perhaps more, has been extremely divisive. And what's been lacking in so many public policy debates is any sense of empathy, and particularly a sense of empathy with those who really are struggling or those who are being left behind or who are on the margins. So I think we need to to think differently about the way in which we engage in debates. We need to think much more compassionately and empathetically. And I'd steal your point, John, and say we need to stop talking about an economy, but see the economy as a means to an end. And that end is human and environmental well-being. So how do we kind of shift things so that we're thinking quite differently? Um, and the third point I would make is that I, I think we need to shift our policies so that and our policy debates so that social services and benefits across the board are actually reflecting people's needs. You know, Peter, you made the point that New Start in Australia is, you know, at the lowest level of those kinds of benefits in the OECD. We need to start to recalibrate how we approach social services and benefits so that we are actually supporting people and treating people with dignity. And that's in a context at the moment where we are likely to see the costs of living increase as a result of the fires. We've talked about lots of things, but the impact, for example, on food prices is likely to be quite dramatic. So living on New Start in a context of higher costs of living is going to be devastating for people who may not have been directly impacted by the fires. So as my thir third point, it's, it's a thinking about services and benefits and how they meet real need. John, the last word to you. If we are to address that, that rampant marketisation of nearly every corner of our lives that's resulted in our gradual acceptance in the antisocial logic that you should pay for what uh, you use and you should only get what you pay for, if we are to get anywhere along that road that we desperately need to, to get uh, to, to travel along, uh, I believe we must uh, start with the fact that there is nothing natural about this disaster. Uh, this is not a natural disaster. Uh, we use that terminology uh, in some ways as a means of cultivating that sense of powerlessness uh, as if it was simply in the face of nature. Uh, this is a, this is a disaster that has historically built up and the starting point for that disaster was really the act of invasion and colonization. And to me, uh, this is our fundamental contradiction within Australian society. Uh, this is what we must address. This is, it is a matter of voice. We must, I believe, begin there, uh, by embracing as a nation the, uh, the, the Uluru, uh, statement from the heart and completely changing the way we look at, uh, this country. We have, uh, you know, begun to, to hear, thankfully, uh, you know, in, in mainstream media more and more, uh, stories about the, the significance of, uh, First Nations cultural burning, uh, not, not just as a means of, of, uh, you know, preventing, uh, these sorts of catastrophic fires, but of managing the land. I really believe this has to be our starting point for any national conversation. It's the only respectful way to move forward. Uh, you know, Lorena Allum, the uh, uh, First Nations woman and the uh, the uh, Indigenous Affairs editor at The Guardian, um, you know, said very beautifully in an article recently, we know 
we know what it feels like to lose everything. I think that's where we have to start. That's a powerful note to end on. I would like to thank all three of you for sharing your insights and your expertise on this really important topic. So thank you, Peter. Thank you, John. And thank you, Sharon. Great to have you on. Thank you. Now, listeners, you've heard the thoughts of our expert panel, but we want to hear your thoughts on what we've talked about today. It is really easy to reach us directly. You can meet and chat to all the presenters and other listeners on our Facebook podcast group. You can find us as Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. Alternatively, you can send us a message on Twitter where we are APPS Policy Forum. That's apps policy forum or go old school drop us an email at podcast at policyforum.net and if you're keen to make a positive impact on the well-being of others through policy i recommend you check out crawford school's master of social policy you'll learn from leading academics in their field and you'll develop your skills in social policy making and implementation for government and ngo roles Go check it out at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Before we let you go, I would like to encourage you to donate to the charities that are helping those people that we've talked about today who are affected by the bushfires. Every cent you can give will help and we'll leave some links in the show notes. So please give generously. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe or give us a review and help spread the word about the podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.